hero that you're dreaming of Have me forever Make me eat leather and do some sandwich Fighting with you What the fuck happened? Did I get cut off again? Does this sometimes. Shit. Oh, wait a minute. There it is. Like a knight in shining armor from a long time ago. Oh, no. I thought I had the mute on. Didn't. Now I do. Muted is on. Are you ready for some debates? Thursday night party. We got Frank and Al and Steve. It's going to be a big party. I am so excited about this debate, honestly. Specifically how Trump is going to respond to being COVID ruined and gacked up. And also clearly in a death spiral where he is in some level aware of his position, even though he denies it. Which means he might be completely buck wild in this thing. And apparently they're going to try to actually mute him. Very interested to see how that actually plays out. And if there's any willingness or, or uh, on the part of the moderators to really try to rein him in if he doesn't want to be reined in. But maybe they put him on the rhino tranks to preserve the Senate. They're like, oh God, we can't let him go out here like this. And they just fucking take him down and he like gets to half speed and he's doing like chopped and screwed Trump, which is at least, you know, they could point to and say, see, he's not quite as erratic and manic and wild and seemingly uh, on the verge of tears as he has been in every recent public appearance. We'll see. I mean, after that 60 Minutes interview, I mean, my God, the, ga the man is just a whiny bitch. It's kind of, it's kind of amazing. But of course, it doesn't matter. It's all just a fun, fun uh, spectacle. I think the race was probably decided on the fundamentals. I'm pogging. Folks, I'm pogging. And don't we love to pog? Don't we love pogging? But anyway, because I think it might be fun, and because, honestly, I didn't feel like our contribution to the first debate really made it any funnier or more interesting because of just how how language broke down and it was just this symphony and it was like we were talking during a symphony uh i'm going to we're not going to be doing a chapo podcast related stream of the debate i believe alex low action will be uh doing it for fym on here and uh if you want to have like a chill you know friend to watch with Alex will be very good. But I really just want to enjoy it. I just want to sit. Now that I have had my breakthrough moment with the last debate, I want to sit with this one and just let it wash over me. Like, forget any attempt to, to interrogate, you know, the sentences or words for meaning. Break them down, break them of context, turn them into just music, and then just let it wave over me, which is what I kind of felt like I did during the town hall when they were competing streams, I was listening to both of them, and I was sort of toggling back and forth and creating my own pixie song. So that's going to be fun. But then when it's over, I think I and Chris, and I don't know who else, whoever wants to, will pop on to do some reacts 
some hot reacts. I don't think we're going to get, we never got that Suns debate. Never made up for the lost debate by giving us the Suns. It's tragic. He does seem to sound bad lately. I mean, maybe that's people's wishful thinking, but it does seem like COVID has taken a little bit out of his sails. He seems to be kind of delirious and when he isn't very raspy. I'm not sure all who will be in the post-debate stream. I know I will be, and I think Chris also. I hope Chris, since he runs the, runs the Discord thing. Yeah, the one way you know that Trump is either, either thrown in the towel or just has lost his touch is that their big, their big psychological move at the last debate which in 2016 was in the face of the planet, uh, the uh, Entertainment Tonight tapes coming out and the grabbing by the pussy controversy. In the teeth of that, mere days later, he went out there and put all of a, a he put a, a chorus line of Bill Clinton's most prominent uh, sexual assault uh, accusers in a row. I mean, absolute masterclass. This time, it's. Uh, uh, some guy named Tony Baloney, some guy, that is the equivalent of when Democrats would like epically talk about, oh my God, you know who Lev Parnas knew? That's right. If you're thinking it's flirtosh, it's flirtosh, okay? And that's the kind of stuff that nobody outside their screen, their area knew, and they would scream across the void during the whole, the, the fucking impeachment bullshit, which, LOL, can you imagine... Um, Think of all the fucking energy these people put into that. Even the people, like the people who did it and the people who watched and cheered about it and cared about it and got rapped about it. Think of that energy. Do they not in their heart know that it was completely wasted? That it meant nothing? That it was just jacking off into an ocean? They don't get that at some point. I think some of them do. Which is why they have to keep shrieking and creating more and more like insane hypothetical universes where the, their brand of... Uh, of, of pragmatic idealism is mildly relevant. So this would be like if in, if if this would honestly be like if say Biden was say COVID hadn't happened right, uh, um, and the economy like maybe it's maybe we're seeing it start to cool off a little bit, which is what the the there were fundamentals that seemed to indicate that we were headed towards recession even before COVID. So, but maybe it's like, it's not a huge drop. And, and then it's, you know, that is honestly, even if it started then, that might be too early to really affect the election. Like the reason George W. H. W. Bush lost in 1992 is largely because the little recession that happened at this end of his second term was in the exact right moment to just ripple out and, and be maximally impacting people's uh, minds, uh, the news and, uh, and their votes which wouldn't necessarily have happened, depending on how severe it was. But anyway, 
say we live in that world and, and, and the election, nothing's about COVID and it's all about, you know, uh, probably about Trump being corrupt and probably more Russiagate stuff and let's and, and impeachment stuff. And maybe in, and, and, and like Trump is up by five going into election day at the national level and the Democrats are going insane because how do people not get it? And their big coup de grace would be to bring out like uh, Stephen Parsnip or one of the people that no one outside of the Rachel, Bad- bubble Ma- uh, Rachel Maddow bubble knows and put them in the front row to remind people about the Ukraine crimes or something. That would be as out of touch and ridiculous as him bringing Hunter Thompson, Hunter Thompson, Hunter Biden's uh, what, a crime buddy. No one gives a fuck. And it just goes to show that, you know, you live by the sword, die by the sword in terms of, uh, like, that Trump in 2016 ran a campaign that was effective in part because Trump knew what the, the people wanted because it was what he wanted. Having watched the white, having watched Obama be president for eight years and having been personally infuriated by Obama and by Democrats and liberalism in general as a result of his revulsion of Obama, he is able to articulate with perfect clarity the concerns of, you know, this, this dispossessed lumpen bourgeois we have in this country. And they, and they were, he was able to affix to Hillary Clinton uh, all of the, the horrors of the last 40 years, not just social liberalism, but economic and neoliberalism. She was the avatar of all of it. Uh, and he was able to paint her in that way. And, and her personal corruption was able to be put into it. Her, her, her husband's sexual license was able to neutralize any attacks on Trump's personal virtue. This time, he's not, he spent the last four years not outside of the presidency. He has literally been dictating the news that he's been watching while everyone else is watching him and trying to identify with him. And what that means is that he is now no longer able to pitch himself to a broad spectrum of, you know, relatively uncommitted, less than partisanly uh, identified voters, which has a lot of people and which a lot of, like, the dedicated partisans who make up the consumers of most political media have a hard time imagining, but it's true. And those are the people who make the decisions every fucking four years between one person winning and the other. And also who decides to come out and vote who wouldn't have otherwise. And none of that is getting... None of them care about Glorp Simpson and Flitch Doodleberg, just like they didn't care about the the stuff with uh, with Trump and the Russians. It's the exact same sort of epistemic uh, black hole. It's the same uh, bubble, which goes to show that like there really is no difference between these people. Like even even Trump, once he got into Hollywood, well, I mean, sorry, once he got into the White House just turned into another disconnected Hollywood Hollywood slash Washington sicko. He, 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 even as he fought against what he saw as a hostile culture, he, he subconsciously absorbed all of their priors, including that people care about stuff like who Hunter Thompson's, Hunter Thompson, Hunter Biden's uh, uh, co-criminal is. As though, as though, like, the Hillary Clinton thing had anything to do with the, the content of the case, like the emails themselves. It was what that represented about Hillary Clinton. And he could do that because he was challenging an incumbent. And now he is. And it, he's the incumbent. And it just, he never learned how to realize he was in power because he's just been watching the presidency for the past four years. I 
I'm very interested to see what the uh, turnout ends up being because you're seeing crazy numbers in early turnout in states like Texas and Georgia. Now, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. We have no idea how many of these people are banking, are, how many of these are banked votes that would otherwise have come on election day. We have no way of knowing. But when you see how big it is compared to the number of votes that like were the, in the last election, it's hard not to imagine that, you know, even if it's just an effect that because fewer people vote on election day, it's easier to vote on election day and more people who might be on the fence about voting will do it because it's less of a hassle. Like, even if that's the amount of effect it has, it could be a significant in terms of moving something from, you know, a, 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 a clear elector, uh, uh, popular vote victory, but then, you know, the, 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 the nightmare of litigation in all the swing states uh, and a relatively anticlimactic Biden victory. Who knows? It's interesting. I keep saying Hunter Thompson. I think it's because there's... Uh, he seems like the kind of guy who has read Hunter Thompson and taken some of the wrong lessons from it. And I would say that the numbers of people voting is the thing that's more, at this point, interesting and dispositive uh, than um, the polls. Because, obviously, you can say the polls are wrong because they were wrong last time. You know, I mean, I do think that, that Biden has a bigger and more durable lead than Hillary did at the same point. I'm pretty sure that's true. Uh, but even if you say they're still fucking up and the methodology is still wrong, and even if you assume it's in the same direction, uh, I think just the trend of the polling plus the reality of all these early voting. I mean, if there, it's just if there's a high, there's two models here. There's a high turnout model and a low turnout model. Trump could win a low turnout model. In fact, a low turnout model probably favors a Trump victory over a Biden one. But Trump basically cannot win a high high turnout election. Because we know from the last 20 years what the GOP percentage of the vote is. Trump did not have any kind of big surge of support over previous Republicans. What he did is he had support in some different areas that were crucial for the uh, uh, electoral map. Because they, because of our fucking electoral college, but overall it was basically the same percentage. And the thing is, is that because of the electoral college, because of voter suppression, and and uh, and you know the explicit policy of the Republican Party wherever it's in power to to make it more difficult to vote as a as a party policy as a as a matter of like platform uh, uh, importance, and that they've been successful at that. Uh, and, uh, means that they can win. But if there's a lot of people who vote, if even with those things, people still vote for some reason or another, they're motivated to, that would swap it. Like Hillary lost because the share of vote that went away from her in terms of people not voting in the right states, and a few of them shifting from Obama to Trump, but mostly just not bothering to show up in the crucial states. Those people likely are not going to come out to vote for Trump because those are not really politicized people, which means I don't think they're looking at the fucking coronavirus and saying, well, you know, it's all China's fault and uh, fake news because they don't, if they accepted his premise, they would already be on board. You know what I mean? Now, there is a theory that says that QAnon style shit and like the dissolving nature of reality and the way that we have totally just like stepped through the looking glass in terms of living within a spectacle 
that maybe all of our understanding of like incentive structure and voting has been annihilated by our collective break, a nervous breakdown in the face of this overwhelming sea of information that cannot be traversed with any kind of certainty, that we basically have to drive ourselves insane and create fantastic uh, 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 like uh, rituals to charge sacred objects with power in order to scry meaning out of the darkness and chaos of online and, and the world around us. And so that means that why people are going to vote for who they do is almost quantumly improbable to predict, in which case anything could fucking happen. And I am not ruling that out. As I have said, I'm not going to be surprised by any outcome. Somebody asked, was Papio Daniel a precursor to Trump? I mean, he's part of a tradition. You can trace Trump through a line of American political figures, and Papio Daniel would certainly be one of them. Uh, Papio Daniel is, of course, the name of the uh, governor in, Miss in oh, Mississippi governor in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And he is the guy who has an old-timey radio station that plays ads for his flower. Uh, that's a real guy, Papio Daniel, but he was not governor of Mississippi. Uh, he was Texas. Uh, and the, the thing that's interesting, uh, I think, is and he was a guy who, who, who was a, had started off as a, like, door-to-door -door flower salesman and then become a flower wholesaler and then sponsored a TV show or a radio station, uh, a, a radio show, a radio program of old-timey uh, folk music. Uh, the, and the Papio Daniel Flower Hour. And... He became famous enough in Texas that he ran, I believe, for governor and then for senator. And uh, he defeated Lyndon Johnson in Lyndon Johnson's first run for Senate in 1940... Uh, was it 1942? Or 1940? Uh, I think it's 1940. Um, and in that race, he lost because both O'Daniel Johnson had certain rotten boroughs, like uh, counties in Texas where the local uh, justice of the peace essentially controlled the votes and could determine how many votes uh, uh, the respective candidates got and then just delivered them to the highest bidder, basically. And they both had these, these guys, these votes collected. And over the night, as the votes came in, the legitimate votes and the illegitimate votes, they would let them out, sort of as needed, and there was always a... Uh, a staring contest about who would look, release their votes last, because once you, once the enemy had re, had released their last crooked votes, you knew then how many you needed, and that meant you could go over the top. And that's what happened: is that Johnson released his last counties prematurely because he felt like he had a big enough uh, margin that he could just let them all out there to like flood it. But that gave Papio Daniels people the number that they had to beat. And so they just scrawled it up and posted it, and boom, they won. And so that's the environment that Texas politics was like when he ran in 46, which he finally did win, the landslide uh, the, the election where he got that nickname for a just absolutely crooked 
completely stolen uh, senatorial primary campaign against Coke Stevenson. That's a wild story. It's very uh, that volume of the Caro. He's got there's one uh, one of the early Caro volumes about LBJ is just about that means of ascent basically, uh, and it's fascinating. He's a little, little too easy on Coke Stevenson, who was an awful just reactionary political figure and would have just been worse in in office than uh, Johnson. But it's a fascinating like minute by minute telling of it. And the funny thing is, is what ended up determining the vote after this crooked election that had this hugely disputed outcome and, like, the fucking... The Texas Ranger who killed Bonnie and Clyde had to have a showdown uh, over the contents of a bank vault in, in Duval County, which was the crooked county that, uh, that Johnson had... Uh, was part of the Johnson fiefdom. And it ended up go- being officiated by the the Democratic Party, because it was a Democratic Party primary. And the Democratic Party, at the end of the day, was full of New Dealers who wanted to see the New Deal win, succeed. And Coke Stevenson was anti-New Deal. So they picked Johnson. And the funny thing is, that's the right decision. That's the correct decision. If you're there, that's the correct decision. And if you don't understand that, it's because you believe these institutions serve any reason other than the pursuit of power. And that respecting them is going to save you from capital deciding to change the rules whenever it serves them to fuck you over. And the thing is, is you can't even say, oh no, you're, you know, you're, you're defaming the sanctity of the electoral process. Stevenson stole votes too. Everyone was stealing votes. It was not, and there was voter suppression was was systematized. I mean, you know, Texas wasn't as bad as, uh, you know, the Deep South. And in Texas, uh, uh, a lot of the times what you had instead of outright voter uh, uh, repression is that you had, like, urban machines, like in Houston. Uh, uh, like, black vote was like a block that could be purchased. Which, in terms of, you know, actual, uh, you know, franchise isn't much better than not being able to vote because, you know, the reason you're, up, you're being bought well, like, what's buying you is just pure money in the form of, like, connections through the uh, political machine, uh, not actual benefits to anybody uh, who's ma- who are making the votes. Not like the old, you know, Tammany graft, or at least not as, not as uh, beneficently, because, you know, you can never really vote against the racial apartheid that you live under. But anyway, that's an interesting story. And that's a... Yeah, it definitely showed uh, what Johnson was capable of. Holy fuck. I mean, he was like so... There's so many points in his life story where he absolutely should not have gone on. Not just that he grew up super poor. I mean, that's the thing that fired him, and it was the engine of his his ambition, so that was necessary. That's origin story shit. But throughout his life, like his, uh, he took a bunch of insane risks, and like, like that that Senate seat was insanely a huge long shot to begin with, because Coke Stevenson was fucking beloved. He'd been a former like three term governor. Everybody loved him. In fact, and it was like a Cincinnatus thing where he had gone back to his ranch, and they basically had to coax him out of retirement to come save the Democratic Party in in uh, Texas, 
and he was and and Johnson was like some uh, you know a relatively young uh, fresh relatively inexperienced congressman uh, in a giant state like Texas who had almost none of the name recognition and he had to, he like used all this money to do insanely innovative stuff he had a helicopter he campaigned under with going around uh, Texas in a fucking helicopter bought a ton of uh, like uh, radio ads and like you know just to get his name out there and then had also to just steal a ton of ballots just make a a bunch of fake votes to get to be able to even compete for it and like that was while he was having some sort of horrible like gallbladder problem like he almost died at every big point of of of, of real stress in, in Johnson's life and like when he felt like it was slipping away he would go into some sort of like bad uh serious health decline Sometimes related to like gallstones or stomach problems, he had a ton of heart attacks. Like in in moments of d- real stress, he would essentially almost die. But then he would will himself back to life and in th- and to victory. The craziest one for me is that I mean, unless it's unless you think he was in on the Kennedy assassination, uh, in which case it makes perfect sense. But if you buy any version of the Kennedy assassination that does not involve Johnson being aware of it, for him it was just blind luck. He was on the verge of having a career-ending expose of his corrupt dealings as majority leader when he'd been in the Senate. And it was going to come out in, I think, Life magazine the day of or after the Kennedy, assass- the Kennedy was assassinated. And was going to reveal his relationship to this guy, Bobby Baker, who was, in sh- who was like the head of the, um, like the interns in the Senate uh, and was running just a, a massive graft and kickback operation that involved him getting kicking back up to Johnson and he had they had him dead to rights and then after Kennedy was assassinated they pulled the story and it never came back I haven't read JFK and the Unspeakable. I will be, because to me, this book seems to be the thing that's got, like, the most important, like, rallying point for this new emerging, I've talked about, consensus, where, like, Kennedy actually was killed by the deep state. The deep state did operate that way, and he was that much of a threat to it, after being fallow for a while. So I know this is a text i got to engage with, but uh, uh, I'm, I, it's, on, it's on the list. I will read it shortly. I'm interested. I have read The Devil's Chessboard, uh, which is a fascinating book, and it's great on Dulles, but I think it's really interesting that for a book that's, like, pitch is is that it's trying to argue that Dulles was personally responsible for the Kennedy assassination, is that as the book gets closer to the Kennedy assassination, the figure of Dulles recedes from the fucking story more and more, and it becomes much more conjectural, which, I mean, if I'm putting up suspects uh, for deep involvement in the Kennedy assassination... Like, Alan Dulles is up there with, like, Lee Harvey Oswald, but I'm not sure. I'm not convinced is all. I'm not, I am not convinced by any theories of the Kennedy assassination, I would say that, including the single bullet.
I have read Legacy of Ashes, which is very much, you look at it, especially now, of, of the stuff that I didn't know when I read League of Ashes that I've discovered about the CIA since, that isn't in League of a Legacy of Ashes, it's a jaw-dropping feat of omission. I mean, it's, it's like the definition of a limited hangout. All the stuff in that's like outrageous in Legacy of Ashes is all selectively uh, threaded around the premise of greater... Uh, organizational incompetence that makes the case that the CIA is essentially only able to waste money and shoot itself in the foot and has never been able to effectively do anything, which I think is is not an accurate representation of reality at all. And it's a perfect way to like get into the public consciousness real crimes, but but always in that notion of well that's that's was the past. We're, we're working harder to serve you better. Oh, uh, the Carroll book that's about the 46 election is called Means of Ascent. Ooh, if I went on Doughboys, what chain restaurant would I pick? That's an interesting question. I'm going to assume that I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to do anything for the first time. Like, they've probably been everywhere at least once. So I would have to be bringing them back somewhere. The easy answer would just be Culver's, because that's Wisconsin's contribution to, you know, regional chain excellence, I think. But honestly, I think I could probably have a more uh, fruitful conversation, a more interesting conversation about Arby's. Man, I really want one of those Euros. I don't think there's an Arby's in New York, though. The Arby's Euro, not bad. Somebody asked if, uh, if, if they think that Gibbon is right, that Christianity ended the Roman Empire and it wasn't gays. Well, it wasn't gays, obviously, but I'm not sure it was Christianity either. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was something more uh, firmly uh, fixed than a religious enthusiasm. I mean, a lot of me, I don't know that much, honestly, about the fall of Rome. I think that, uh, that uh, like, climate and... Uh, and, uh, like, agricultural yields have, have had something to do with it. I mean, there wasn't that alone, but... Uh, so you had that contribution of, you know, uh, of, of an agricultural... Of, a, of, like, intensifying agricultural crises. And then you have, you know, just the unwieldiness of, uh, of an empire of the type that the Roman Empire tried to be. 
uh, it was like it, it's it's fitting that a lot of the uh, reforms of the like late period involved delegating responsibility away from a single emperor because of how unviable it was. But yeah, that's a lot of stuff. Nothing like that can have one cause. Or even like a handful of causes. It's like a rope. It's like a, you know, you could pick out the strands, but no one strand is the strand. But yeah, anyone who says it's any one thing is wrong, and certainly gayness is the worst one. I remember Francis, I think I saw Francis Schaeffer thing that made like the opposite of the Gibbon point, but totally incoherently where he said, uh, the, like the guy in Lederhosen who did those 70s uh, evangelical his, history and culture videos, I think I was propagandized with those in my like uh, high school history class when I was going to school in the middle of farm country in Wisconsin. But he talked about how the, the, what doomed those societies was a, a finite worldview, is how he put it. I remember at the time just thinking, what, uh, what do you mean? I mean, for, and my main issue with that is that the Roman Empire fell apart as it became Christian. Wouldn't, wouldn't that have, like, prevented a collapse? The emergence of a Christian, you know, uh, ideology suffusing the empire? It's baffling. So yeah, no, if anyone's talking about single answers, that's, they're just trying to get a rise out of people. The question is how the, the, those strands are entwined, you know? Like, that's, it's all just like documenting connections and, and figuring out how mechanisms work as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to sell a single patent explanation, which is, comes out of the sort of entrepreneurial nature of like ac academia, sadly. Like, novelty is rewarded, you know? So there's always a need to create uh, schools of thought that require certain shibboleths and that lead you farther away from truth by pursuing it that way. I don't know, it's tough. I mean, I, I'm wrestling myself with how best to try to create narrative history that acknowledges, you know, the contingency of, of chronolo chronological events while still grounding everything, all those events in sort of the inevitable context that made them, you know, if not inevitable, sort of predetermined in some way. It's tough. But it's worth doing because I think it's the only way to, to communicate really just like how contingency works in history and therefore like what, what, what matters now and what needs to be focused on. Yeah, we need a Diocletian, that's for sure. And I don't think we got one. I don't think Joe Biden is Diocletian. Jesse Ventura could have been Diocletian. Jesse, you fucked up. You could have been Diocletian.
I am a shibboleth, damn it. Who's the most cucked president? I mean, not in terms of, uh, I wouldn't say in terms of politics or like sexuality, but just in terms of a guy who got owned sort of pathetically. Uh, William Howard Taft has got to be up there. So Taft never really wanted to be president. He wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. And he is essentially badgered into running for president by Teddy Roosevelt and his wife, who really wanted to be first lady. And to please both of them, he ran for president, won, Almost immediately, his wife, who was very much looking forward to being First Lady uh, and living in the White House, had a fucking debilitating stroke. And he just, the wind went out of his sails, and he just sort of went through the motions. And then, while he was being president, the guy who helped, like, drag him into it is yelling at him and saying he's not good enough, doing enough job, and then challenges him for president, and then runs against him and gets more votes, and gets more electoral votes, and becomes the last time one of the two major parties finished out of one or two in the electoral vote count, and the popular vote count for that matter. That's cucked. But he uncucked himself by later, finally, getting the job that he dreamed of when they made him Supreme Court Justice, which is a nice little... Maybe he got owned so bad that they had to give him a consolation prize, and lucky for him, it's what he wanted all along. There's some sort of parable there that maybe he just should have you know, listen to his heart. No, no, there shan't be any acid this evening. No, no, no. I think I'll just, uh, I think I'll just chum a little bit. Who poops himself during the debate? Very good question. I got to think that with the COVID, Trump has got to be Mr. Incontinent right now. Will Trump have his mojo tonight? This is the question. All signs point to no. All signs point to his mojo having departed him. He seems low energy. His instincts are all off. He's talking about stuff nobody cares about. If he goes up there and talks about Hunter Bonington for an hour, he's going to lose, and badly. But, you know, the universe has a way of, of preventing uh, the, the shattering of, uh, of consensus reality in one motion like that. We like to just wear away at the edges of reality and not rend it asunder because... I don't know, that's, I'm just trying to explain how, in my gut, I have a feeling that it'll be kind of lower energy, he will be less uh, disruptive, he won't look like terrible shit, and it'll kind of come off as a Trump win by being, uh, like, low, like, less of a circus. And that's just, like, that's where my stomach is. It's like, doesn't that feel right? Like, having it be a real, like, Trump just wheezing, like, Baron Harkonnen and, like, Fleming up and yelling at, fuck, about... Tony Baloney in the front row and spewing like Gallagher all over the place. I just can't see it happening. Or Biden stroking out, as funny as that would be. I don't see that happening either. Just some, I don't know. Maybe I've just, uh, I've run out of things to believe in. Maybe I feel like I've gotten to the point of hyper-normalization where even if that did happen, 
I wouldn't perceive it that way. I would perceive it, like, viscerally as, oh, just boring. Because I will have hypernormalized that quickly. I will be more normal than man. We'll find out, though. I'm looking forward to it. Someone asked, uh, Enver Hoxha, cringe or based? I would say that Enver Hoxha is based cringe. I mean, the bunkers are fucking cringe. I'm sorry. I will not be streaming the debate. Alex will be streaming the debate. I'm going to be watching at home and trying to let it wash over me. Trying not to feel like I have to have a response to anything. That's, I think, what really trips me up. Is I find myself feeling like I need to have a, a grab point to say something instead and that's going to make it harder for me to just let it wash over me so my hope is to just just a, 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 a symphony of sound we will do a post game though at least I and Chris will be doing post game Chris might actually, it looks like Chris might be on the debate as well with Alex, so there you go. I might pop on, who knows. We'll see how it goes. I'm going to start off not on there. Who's playing football tonight? Somebody asks uh, if I feel like Chapo in general is more disenchanted with the system than it was in 2016, and I would say absolutely in the sense that we have had, after 2016, I think all of us had a feeling in that aftermath of that race and in the aftermath of Trump winning that there was a possibility to take the surprise bounty of the Sanders candidacy, which arrayed all these forces that were opposed to the Clintons, for whatever reason, good and bad, to rally around. And that that could be the base for like a counter uh, hegemonic, like self-consciously class-oriented uh, uh, political bloc within the Democratic Party that could seize control of its commanding heights and like reorient the party from there. Uh, and whether or not that is theoretically possible as a strategy, I think some people would say, ah, prove, ah, see, prove you were wrong. I don't know if that's the case. I just know that the illusion that we have had been dissed from is the illusion that, w that American politics in this year 
and the American electorate in this term, and their relationship to voting, and their relationship to the media, and their relationship to the economy, and the electorate, the, 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 the cultural, like, relationship of the classes to, like, the means of production, and the means of cultural expression, and the means and uh, willingness to participate in electoral processes, they're all askew, and they do not add up to a force that can be harnessed to that end, at least not now. I mean, you could say that the campaign made mistakes, and I agree completely. People have been very upfront about a lot of tactical and strategic errors that the campaign made. Bad hires, from bad hires to bad strategy to all bunch of stuff. But when I look at the results, to me, it seems like there was an unmovable block of anti-Sanders uh, uh, conviction among somewhere around 55 to 60% of the broad Democratic primary electorate, if you like, think of that as a stable grouping. And the only way it was going to overcome that was by energizing and engaging non-voters, non-participators in the Democratic primary system. And that failed to happen. And you can talk about why, but I think fundamentally it's because there are there are missing belts, cultural conveyor belts, between the political, the, the, uh, the symbolic and, and uh, uh, meaning orientation around politics and enough of the people you'd need to reach to switch, to swing the demographics of these primary races. So yes, I'd say, like, but the thing is, is that that's constructive because it tells you where you are, you know? It tells you what you what won't work, and you, it tells you what not to do again, and you got to move from there. And the thing is, is that the Democratic Party now that they have now that now that the command of the neoliberal you know consensus has been has been is no longer challenged within it, they're going to govern as as monsters. It's going to be. Uh, a, a hunger chancellorship and that like any crisis is also an opportunity or it needs to be that's all I can say I don't know if we'll be able to meet it I don't know if we have the institutional flexibility or, or capacity to meet the moment uh, I'm skeptical but at the same time there's nothing else to do so if enough people have that conviction then you know that's all you actually need but hitting that number is, is so hard because you never know what it is until afterwards. You'll never know what it was until after it's already happened. Right. Mad or cracked? You know, this is funny. Uh, I know cracked became kind of a, a, a cringy, uh, radical centrist, like, lifestyle website. But back in the 90s and 80s, it was a knockoff of Mad Magazine that I think was made by, like, former writers and editors for MAD who left because MAD wasn't paying them enough because William Gaines was a fucking cheapskate. And so they created an off-brand MAD, which that's the one that I subscribed to. I did not subscribe to MAD Magazine. I subscribed to Cracked, and I honestly can't tell you why. I guess one time I just picked up Cracked, and I, like, I read a thing. I Maybe I saw some John Severin art, because John Severin was a guy who wrote for years, who, who he, he, he did uh, cartoons, or he did comics for years for Mad, and then he left with the crack people to get more money, 
and so he was in Cracked, and I really liked his drawing style, and I, and otherwise it was basically the same material, and I just I went to Cracked. I still respected Mad Magazine, but I only had Cracked delivered to my home. Cracked had a print version. Yes, it was a print magazine. It was originally an arrival for Mad. It was like Mad TV to Mad, hilariously enough. It's like Mad TV to Mad's SNL. Apparently people didn't know this. The children around here don't know this. The damn kids today, they don't know. Sean Baby was very funny. Sean Baby, early internet for the old heads in the chat. The, the guys who invented a certain strain of web comedy. And of course, that's why you can't really go back and read it without cringing because everyone talks like that now. It's, you know, it's like how Joss Whedon, for a while, it was kind of funny and then it became monstrous. But it was good at the time. Fat Chicks and Party Hats is one of the funniest things I ever saw. I just cried reading that when I was a kid. Thoughts on Charles Babbage. How are you going to ask a motherfucker about Charles Babbage? You want to know my opinion on the, the guy who fucking sketched out the difference engine? The prim, a primitive computer? What, what, what opinion of Charles Babbage am I going to have? I don't understand. You just want to, like, see if I knew who he was? You people. You have very wacky answers. You question sometimes. Somebody asked if Chapo is based or cringe, and I would say again, we are based cringe. I read, somebody asked about Neil Stevenson. I've only read Snow Crash. And uh, his way of writing action kind of annoyed me over time, so I never really read anything else. Someone wants my opinion on the Pythagorean theorem. I really don't have one. I'm not even 100% sure what it is. A squared, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, right? Am I voting? Yes, absolutely. I vote every time I can. I've only missed a few times. It's fun. I like it. I like the ritual. 
And I think there is something like in me, like at a civil, like at a civic level, I actually do think you should vote. Like I think, as someone who thinks ritual is important to reinforce behavior, that you know, obviously, voting has way, 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 way too much psychic significance for people, but it should have a little bit, and so it should contribute a little bit. So I I do vote, but. Like, the thing is, that's a totally separate question than who to vote for. And it is a different rubric. And, like, a lot of the undergirding assumptions behind a lot of these browbeating arguments don't apply, in my opinion. But like I said, I think I'm going to be writing in Hillary because I think that'd be the funniest write-in. I'm going to go into the polls because that's part of the things I liked. I, I, when I, I lived briefly in Washington State where they do the all mail-in, and I didn't really like that. I like going to the thing and doing the thing. I'm really annoyed that I've never uh, voted on a machine, an old-timey machine. They used to print the sample ballot in my local newspaper in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. And it, was a, a it, was a, it was a sketch of the machine, and it had the different candidates and where they'd be. And I remember thinking it was cool, and I wanted to go and do that, but I was too young. And then by the time I was able to vote, I lived in a different area where they did Scantron bubbles, bubble uh, sheets. And then I moved to New York, but right, right before, or right after, they got rid of the old machine. So I've never been able to go on a machine, which is a bummer. But I still like filling in the little bubbles, and I like most of all putting it in the machine and going... All right, just maybe a couple questions here before I go. Thank you. Talking about those euros got me hungry. Got me feeling euro-rific. Watch it as he goes. Horror movie suggestions? I said Return of the Living Dead the other day, so I gotta pick a different one. Uh, on the zombie tip, it's actually available on, you, you can just watch it on YouTube. Peter Jackson's Dead Alive, also known as Brain Dead. That's one of the bloodiest films ever made. 
delightful slap splatter core slapstick. Not very fun, not very scary, but very enjoyable. What movie spawned the, what war spawned the best movies? Alright, well we can eliminate a few right off the bat. Revolutionary War, what? The Patriot? That's about it. Uh War of 1812? I believe there's a movie about the Battle of New Orleans with Charlton Heston as Andrew Jackson, but that's basically it. Maybe there's some terrible movie about the writing of the fucking Star Spangled Banner or something. Civil War, considering how big a part of America's like historic memory it is, it's kind of stunning how few really great Civil War movies there are. I think Glory is a really good movie. I think it's a great movie. I'm sorry. I know, no, no. White Saviors, yes, I understand. There's a lot of issues with what stories get told in Hollywood, but the way that that story was told, I thought was good. Um, but man, it's in it's not it's a thin rank past that. I mean, what are we talking? Birth of a Nation, uh, which, you know, you could say is bad politics, but is you know, a good movie at the time. I honestly do not get... I can't watch a silent film and, like, appreciate it. I can't do that. I don't have that film historian thing of going, like, wow. I can put myself in the head of somebody who was impressed, you know, by seeing the train go by on, on, a, on a screen. Like, I'm sorry. I'm not that person. I'm not that rube. I cannot be impressed by this. But whatever. Uh, Gone with the Wind, same deal. Uh, fuck, what else? Gettysburg, which is pretty much dog shit. And then Gods and Generals, which is, swear to God, one of the worst films ever fucking made. Uh, it's, it's stunningly... There's like a John Huston Red Badge of Carriage of the 50s, I think. It's crazy how few uh, Civil War movies there are. Especially considering how many crazy good stories there are you could do about the Civil War. Uh, but So that's not on the table for sure. Uh, World War One. where you got Sergeant York, and of course, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, Wings, Paths of Glory, that's pretty good. So we're getting a little better there. Uh, then World War Two, of course, you know, there's a lot of bad World War Two movies, obviously, but because of just how many World War Two movies there are, there are also a lot of good ones. There's a lot of good World War Two movies, you know, uh, fuck. Kelly's Heroes, uh, Sands of Iwo Jima, uh, The Longest Day, The Big Red One, uh, fuck, uh, oh shit, Saving Private Ryan, sorry, it's a good movie, uh, uh, Thin Red Line, uh, Midway, not Pearl Harbor, that's a bad movie, um, the fucking Harp, even, uh, that, uh, what, Heartbreak Ridge or whatever the fuck, Hacksaw Ridge? I mean, that movie was a little sappy, but it had some awesome action scenes. Awesome, awesome war scenes. Uh, Tora, 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 yeah. Guns of Navarone. 
Uh, fuck, Von Ryan Express. That's a fun movie where fucking uh, where Frank Sinatra and a bunch of uh, allied POWs hijack a Italian uh, uh, train to try to escape. A Cross of Iron, holy shit, Bridge of the River Kwai, Inglorious Bastards, come and see! Okay, I think we got it, because Vietnam's good too, but I don't think I'm getting anywhere near this list. Patton, Bridge Too Far, Dirty Dozen is good, The Great Escape, holy shit. God, I mean, it was, it was like, that was the big good thing we did as a civilization, even though it, was, it involved us basically just lancing a boil that our own civilization had created in the form of feral German nation and Japanese nationalism unleashed by uh, like the late application of capitalist uh, modes of production to a primitive civilization in many ways. Catch-22 is pr not bad. Oh man, Memphis Bell. I saw that movie a million times as a kid. Love it. Uh... Casablanca, people like. I've never honestly seen it. I'm sorry. So, yeah, I gotta go World War II. WW2. WWII. Army of Shadows. Yes. Not Enemy at the Gates. That's not a great movie. I would like to see some more Spanish Civil War movies. Although Spanish Civil War did not have a lot of uh, not a lot of pageantry, honestly, a lot of uh, confusion and bungling and and cannibalism. I want to see that uh, that Bread and Freedom movie. I've never seen it. Duck You Sucker is a very good movie about the Mexican Revolution, which could use way more movies. The Mexican Revolution, come on, give me some movies about that, holy shit. Kelly's Heroes. We love it, folks. Kelly, Kelly and his heroes, they're the best. We love them, folks. We love them. They're the best. They're the heroes that we love. They've got the gold. They went and they got the gold and they brought it here. Before, they were going to leave the gold. And now, we've got the gold. The gold's here, folks. And we love it. We love it. Bye-bye, guys.